Yes. <clears throat> All right, we are in our we are actually starting our fifth week in Galatians. If you are memorizing with us, that means that you are you might be, depending on how your community group started this, you might be memorizing the last section of chapter one. You might be like our community group, finished with chapter 1, which is pretty cool. Uh, we've got some people all along the, all along the way, but that's about, about where most of us are working. And so I'm just going to encourage you, there's time to catch up, there's time to be a part of this, even if you have missed out on it as we've begun. Um, this, this gospel or this, this explanation of the gospel, Paul's fight for freedom in the letter to the Galatians is just... It's so relevant to us today, and so I would encourage you to continue being a part of that. Today, as we jump back in, we're actually jumping into chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles, Galatians chapter 2 is where we're going to be at as we really begin to consider how Paul is fighting for freedom. Um, I'll never forget a conversation I had with a young Chinese girl on the streets of a city called Yangshua. It was my first trip into China. It was one of many short-term mission trips I'd gone on, uh, but this was my first one into China. The, the, the mission that we were doing, it was very clandestine. We were hiding in hotel rooms and talking in hushed tones, and when we'd hear somebody outside of the hotel room, we were constantly concerned um, that they might know what was going on, and the, the materials that we were carrying with us, uh, we were like drug dealers in America. I mean, we had if we had been caught with the stuff we had with us, there was obviously an intent to distribute because we had so many Bibles or portions of the Bible. It was the, the book of Luke and the Acts and gospel material written in the Mandarin language. It was obvious that it wasn't just for our personal use. And so we were, we were carrying gospel material with the intent to distribute. And so what we were doing was illegal. But it was God blessed it. He, he enabled us to, to go by His grace without any trouble. And we distributed these materials in villages that were out in the middle of nowhere. Some of them, I don't know why anyone would want to live where they were at. I mean, there was one we went into, it was on top of a mountain. Uh, In fact, we camped on top of the mountain because we got there after dark. We were not going to go into the village after dark because it would have caused too much commotion. Um, But when we woke up the next morning, we woke up in a cloud and it was it was crazy. I mean, it, the, actually, we woke up. It was kind of funny. We woke up, and there was a, a guy standing. We didn't carry tents with us because the materials we were carrying with us weighed so much already. He was standing over us with a stick that looked like a spear on both ends, just looking at us. And we kind of <laughs> woke up. And so, what, I don't remember who woke up first, but he starts kind of, hey, hey, there's somebody here. And there's this guy looking at us just all serious. We actually have a picture of it. It's kind of funny. But he was, he was actually very kind. I, I think he just was shocked to find four white people on top of that mountain in the middle of nowhere. Um, but anyway, so um, it, was a, it was a great, great experience. God blessed in so many ways on that trip. It was a huge turning point in my life. Uh, God grew me in immense ways even on top of that mountain. I'll share that story with you another time. But every time I would leave to go on a mission trip, the thing I would pray for as I went into these foreign countries was that he would give me the gift of tongues that I might speak to the people in a language that they would understand so that I could share the gospel clearly. And for those of you that are here today that think that aren't really charismatic about things, you're feeling a little uncomfortable with that. 
But I fully believe that God can overcome these language barriers, and I prayed for that. And I prayed for it consistently. He never did it supernaturally. But I was never let down. I was never let down. Every trip, every trip, he answered this prayer in an amazing way. Through circumstances, he would put me with someone who could speak my language and then could turn and share. One of the most amazing ones was in China. Another trip, a Buddhist man sat down to read the Bible to a woman who he wouldn't accept the faith. He wouldn't believe it. He was Buddhist and he was sold out to the Buddhist ideals. But he read the gospel to a woman who turned and then became a Christian. It was amazing. And God put that together. Every time it happened. Well, here I was. The trip was over. We were in this city called Yangshua. It was kind of our rally point after the mission. Our teams had gone out, distributed these gospel materials in these different villages, and we would meet back up in this city called Yangshua. And that's where we would kind of rest, talk and talk about the stories and tell, tell one another all the things that God had done. We would buy souvenirs and then we'd head home. And that was that way every year. This one particular year, we're standing in a shop. I was waiting on a group of people. I think they were wanting to buy some silk goods. And we're standing outside the store. I, I'm not... I'm not going to buy a silk dress. You know, it just doesn't. It's not me. So I was standing outside the store on the street with another guy. And this girl comes up to us and begins speaking English. We were kind of shocked by that because it was only like the second time in a week and a half that it had happened that anyone spoke to us in our language. And she begins to tell us how she has a college assignment to to speak with Americans. That was the first question out of her mouth. Do you speak English? Are you American? Because... Her college class had required them to do this, and there was college students doing this up and down the, the street we were on. The, the college class required them to work on their language skills with not just teachers in the classroom, but people who actually spoke the language. And so she began a conversation with us. What she didn't recognize was that that was the answer to my prayer, that God had given us an opportunity to share the gospel in a way that someone would understand. That whole trip, we hadn't talked to a soul. We hid these little gospel packets in villages. We, we hid them and we walked on. We, we trusted that the Lord would do a work and that he would bring people to those packets. And then Christians from, the Chinese, or from that people group, it was, a, it was a minority group in China, Christians that would speak the language would then follow in and, and work on what we had done. But, oh man, I wanted so desperately to be a part of sharing the gospel in China. I can't tell you why, I just didn't. So that was my prayer. And what she didn't realize was she was the answer to that prayer. And so we quickly turned the conversation to Jesus. And we asked her, have you ever heard of Jesus? And she's like, yeah, I have. And she begins to just, she's excited. There's this sense of awe about him as she speaks about him, which I was moved by because you talk about Jesus in our country and it's totally different. Oh, come on, not him, not him again. You know, that kind of thing. She was excited. She wanted to talk about this man, Jesus. And so quickly the conversation, just it just rolled. And she was asking questions. And, and along the way, she tells us this. I think somewhere along the way, we asked the question, well, have you ever thought about becoming a Christian? And she said, well, I'd love to be a Christian, but it's just so hard. And the guy and I that were standing there were like, what? What do you mean that it's hard? And she began to share that the people that had talked to her about Jesus 
had told her that she had to get her life right. That she had to quit doing all of this list of things before she could come to know this man, Jesus. And what they did in doing that, what they did was they loaded upon her a yoke of slavery. She didn't recognize that she was a slave to this idea. She didn't recognize that she was enslaved to this lie. But it's that very principle, it's that very thing, that very idea that Paul is fighting against as he defends his gospel message in the letter to the Galatians. It's this very idea that he's striving to, to challenge these Galatians to, to come past, to move past, to, to gain some greater understanding of what Jesus had done. You see, what these people had done essentially has told her that she's got to get cleaned up before she gets in the bathtub. She's got to take a shower before she climbs in the tub to get clean. And it's, it's as if we can do something to remove the, the, the filth of our life and then come to Jesus prepared and ready. And that's the exact problem that Paul faced in the book of Galatians. It's the exact reason why he began to defend his identity as an apostle and the credibility of his message. And that's really what we've been dealing with as we went through the first chapter and we'll deal with further as we go through the second chapter. But I think it's especially important today because we're going to see, we're going to see that this wasn't just a problem in Galatia. I mean, I've shared with you a story today that it's real and alive even in our cultures today. But this was a problem that the Jewish church was facing. And we're going to see that kind of fleshed out today. If you'll read with me, we'll start in chapter, chapter 2, verse 1. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on these two verses, but I want you to have them for context. I want you to understand kind of what Paul's doing and what's happening here. Paul is still defending his identity, his, his apostleship, and he's, this is a part of his testimony. He's sharing his story. We're going to deal with that more and flesh it out more next week as we're able to deal with more of that passage but what Paul's explaining is a time that he went into Jerusalem and was a part of a church council that met where he laid out the gospel that he had been teaching. And they said, yeah, that sounds just like our gospel. And they worked it out. And, and what you'll see next week is that they shake hands on it and everybody's loving one another. And that's the gospel message. But here's the thing. What these people, the reason that Paul had gone to them the, the thing that he was struggling with as he went to them was that all along the way where Paul went and preached his gospel, he faced opposition over and over and over again. Really what he was facing in Galatia was no different than much of what he had been dealing with as he preached the gospel everywhere he went. See, what, what had begun to happen was this. Christianity had begun to grow and it spread outside of Jerusalem. Now, as it spread in Jerusalem, everything was great because everybody had kind of the same cultural perspective. They had a, the same religious understanding. They had the same traditions and they kind of all stuck to the same ideals. But as that spread beyond the Jewish culture, 
beyond socioeconomic lines, beyond gender lines, beyond, beyond all of the little diverse... And it, as it began to diversify, as Christianity began to diversify, let's say it like that, they began to deal with struggles and issues. Because Gentile people don't necessarily act like Jewish people. Why would they? Really? I mean, the problem of the day was circumcision. And honestly, Jewish people were doing it as holding to a tradition or to... Some of them were still holding to the law. So the Jewish Christians were often holding just to the tradition because it was very important to their heritage. But Gentile people had never been given a covenant by God to to circumcise their baby boys on the eighth day. For them, it would have been totally foreign. It's not that circumcision was not something that went on in other cultures, but it usually happened in adulthood, which... I don't know why anybody would do that in adulthood, but the, the reality was that that was occurring. But, but the, the reality is, is that the people didn't act the same. Their traditions were different. For us, as we stood there and talked to this young Chinese girl, her traditions, the way that she would have approached Christianity would have been the same, but the way it would have borne itself out in her life and begun to look might have been very different. I'm doubting that she would stand in a room with people and sing songs in English. In fact, a song about God being her everything in her culture. Yeah, I get he's supposed to be my everything, but how does that bear itself out in my life? The traditions and the things that we follow would look very different. The way that she would dress when she would go to church would be very different. In fact, in that culture, when we were able to be a part of this in China several times, was we would walk into these homes where Christians would gather and it wasn't about the size of a church in China. They weren't trying to grow big churches. They were hiding and gathering in homes. And you'd walk into these rooms where one light bulb would be on in the center of the room and somebody would be reading the scripture in a whisper. You didn't have pastors standing up and shouting and proclaiming things real loudly. You had people gathering, longing to hear the truth of God. It's totally different. Had a much different feel. They didn't go to church to get some emotional rush or emotional high. But many people, when they walk in a building, they begin to judge the, 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 the presentation. They begin to judge what their experience is. They begin to judge what they are being given. That's the differences in our culture. And that's what the gospel was beginning to be challenged by. And so many people would teach just outright lies. That's really what was happening in Galatia. Many people would begin to teach in ways that, that didn't undermine the gospel, but it kind of, they, they were able to keep their religious tradition without, without saying that it saved them. And no, no, none of the apostles, none of the leaders had any problem with that. And really, we shouldn't have any problem with that. Because the reality is you have religious tradition as well. In fact, we have a tradition here. You're going to come here and you're going to sing two or three songs at the front. And you're going to sing two or three, maybe four songs at the back, depending on how long I go. That's for Brent. But that's our tradition. That's a tradition. That's what, that's what we do at church. We're going to gather in homes and we're going to have, the, have community groups in people's homes. That's our tradition. doesn't necessarily have to look like that. We could have a community group in a coffee shop. We could meet... We, we can go down to Mother's. In fact, we've done this. A brewery, a tasting room in a brewery. And we've had a Bible study there. It was amazing. It was great. 
It's part of our tradition. But I can tell you that there's churches in Springfield that if they found that out, they'd be pointing the finger and pretty angry. But the reality is, is that's the religious tradition. And so what began to happen is it really began to diversify and has continued to diversify as the truth of the gospel has met culture. And so we're really going to deal with that more next week. But I want you to have that context. I want you to have that understanding that this is what Paul's fighting. And really what we're going to see in these verses to come is that he really deals with that specifically here on this visit to Jerusalem. And so if you'll just continue reading with me, we'll move on to verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. Now, I just want you to stop. I want you to think about this. Paul here, has, he's kind of stopped. Galatians 2, 1 through 10 is this one story about uh, an event that happened. Galatians 2, 1 through 10. But in the middle of that, he stops, and he's famous for doing this. You, anywhere you read him, you're going to find parenthetical statements where he stops talking about the story at large and begins talking about something else. And that's what happens in verse 3. And so verse 3 and five, three through 5 is really where we're going to hang out and spend the most of our time today. And that's what he does. He stops in the middle of his explanation. He gives us this parenthetical statement, and he begins to talk to us about this guy named Titus. Now, let me let you know who Titus was. He's, he's a young guy that probably Paul led to Jesus. Paul had met him somewhere along the way, told him about the gospel. Maybe Paul was preaching to a large group of people. He hears the gospel. He responds, comes to faith, and they begin, then begins to work with Paul and follow along with Paul and move on mission trips and things like that. Titus was a leader in his own right. It was obvious to Paul that God had done a work in his life and that he had been changed. In fact, Paul, in the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote that Titus was his co-worker and partner. He, he wasn't just some guy that showed up and, and hung out. He was a co-worker in the gospel, a partner in the gospel, doing the work with him. Titus was also a guy who he left behind as he went on a mission trip. He comes to a place called Crete. He works in Crete. He gets up and he moves and he leaves Titus. And he tells Titus, put things in order. Assign elders in the church. Help them establish these churches. Help bring them to order. So he trusted Titus. He obviously believed that Titus had been converted. He believed that Titus had the Holy Spirit. But here's the deal about Titus. He was a Gentile. He was a Gentile Christian, which meant that he was uncircumcised. His parents didn't follow the Jewish law. They didn't follow any rules. They, Titus just showed up somewhere where Paul was teaching one day, hears the gospel and comes to faith. And he's an uncircumcised Christian. Now, there are some that think that Paul brought Titus with him as kind of a it's kind of a case, a test case or a proof of what his gospel is. Martin Luther thinks that. Not everybody thinks that. We don't really know. But Paul is preaching a gospel of grace. By grace, by God's unmerited goodness, for no reason on our own are we given salvation. We can only accept it through faith. That's Paul's gospel message. Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place for our sins provides for us His righteousness as He takes from us our sins. And we can't do anything to earn that except believe in Him. Even our faith isn't about us. It's really focused on Jesus. You see, your faith is worthless if it's 
object isn't Jesus. And so that's Paul's gospel. Paul's teaching that gospel. Titus shows up, hears it, responds. And there's absolutely no reason for Paul to then turn and say, hey, we got to run down to the dock. It's time to get circumcised. Because Paul saw the fruit of the Spirit. He saw the conversion in Titus's life. That's who Titus is. And here he is. Paul brings him with him on this trip. But even he, they didn't make get circumcised. However, it's about to get nasty. Because not everybody felt the same way. Not everybody saw it the same way. And so these spies begin playing games. And that's where it starts in verse 4. Yet, because of false brothers, let's just keep the context. Verse 3 and then verse 4. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even, <clears throat> even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, it's tough reading this verse in English, but in the original language, you should know this that people like uh, Barn, uh, oh, what's his name? I'm gonna, Barnhouse. He, he says that this is a shipwreck of curriculum. Like, like this is, Paul's not writing sentences in this, in this three verses. He's writing down phrases, and it, it appears that he's gotten very emotional and very passionate. It appears that he is just, he's just putting thoughts down on paper and, and they tie together, but they're not really completing thoughts. Except that as we read it and we see, we can begin to understand that there are some things that Paul's dealing with. There, there's some things that come through very clearly. Titus wasn't circumcised. We understand there were some people who wanted him to be circumcised. We can see that. They were the spies. They were the false brothers that slipped in. They weren't welcome. They did. It's not as if the church opened the doors and said, hey, false brothers, come in and, and challenge us in our teaching. They didn't say, hey, come on in. You belong just because you don't think like us or, or believe the same things that we do. You're welcome. Come on in and share all these ideas. They, they didn't. They, that's not how they were welcomed. They snuck in. They slipped in. They came in and spied out the freedom. This is not, this is not flattering language. Paul didn't think highly of these people. I mean, it's pretty clear. It, it, it's pretty clear that, that there's an issue at hand. And it, it, it circles around circumcision because that's the topic of the day. It, it, it's brought on by this idea of circumcision. But that's not really the whole problem. See, the issue is that Paul is fighting against this idea that any work or tradition or ritual could provide salvation or made a person more saved. These false brothers come in, spying out the freedom they have in Christ, looking at these teachings, and they say it's a lie. And that you have to add to that our traditions to make it real. Oh yeah, believing in Jesus is great, but you got to get circumcised. Oh yeah, believing in Jesus is great, but you got to sing a certain number of songs in a certain style, at a certain tempo, with certain instruments. Oh yeah, believing in Jesus is great, but you can never drink another beer. Oh yeah, believing in Jesus is great. You add your own little thing. What other tradition do we lump in there? Oh yeah, believing in Jesus is great, but 
And that's what these guys had come to do, these false brothers. Notice, Paul, Paul says they're false brothers. They're fake. They're not real. They don't belong. They're counterfeit. But see, the, the, the issue that he's fighting is this whole idea that these guys are striving to bring into the church and bring them back to slavery. But circumcision isn't the real issue. Freedom and slavery are the issue. It's a central issue that's at stake here. It's the central problem. It's the central thing that Paul wants these people to understand. It's the central thing that he's writing about in this passage. Paul's point in the gospel message he preaches leads to freedom in Christ. It leads us to an understanding that we are free in Christ. It leads us out of bondage to our own nature. Leads us out of bondage to our own nature. And it it, it allows us to live for God in a manner that glorifies Him and pleases Him. And see, we have this whole messed up view of freedom and slavery. We we have this whole screwed up perspective on what that is. And, and, And it's not really any thing to do with us, except that it's, you know, we grew up in this era where slavery, you know, and and man, don't hear me saying it's a good thing, but we condemn the idea of slavery because of our history with slavery. And slavery, as we've experienced it in our nation, is bad. It's wrong. We shouldn't treat people the way that many, many slaves were treated. I don't think we should look at people as property. I don't think that's right. But... Our ideas of freedom are no better. Think about, think about what popular culture says freedom is. Think about how they perceive freedom. Popular culture would say that, that freedom is getting to be the person I want to be. George Michael, I don't know why I thought of this last night as I was sitting there. <clears throat> He's got this song, Freedom, and he sings about getting to be the person he wants to be. And man, even as I read it, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make any sense. But really, that's the way many people in our culture view freedom. I get to be my own person. I get to rule my own life. I'm master of my own destiny. I'm in charge. I answer to no one. The Bible speaks about freedom totally differently. In the Bible, you can read about freedom in several different ways. I'm going to share with you four today. You can, talk, you can read about freedom from slavery or bondage. The Exodus is a good example of this. If you were to read in your Bible in Exodus of the Israelites being led out of Egypt, God was freeing them from a political um, oppression. He was freeing them from a, a political king, a, a a relationship in which they were indebted or in, I'm sorry, in, in bondage to a nation and a people. And he leads them out of that and frees them from slavery. The thing is that he didn't just free them completely to go out and do their own thing. Even as they walked in the desert, they were expected to follow him. You see, he freed them in a horizontal way. He freed them from other people. He didn't free them from himself. 
You can also read in the Bible about freedom from obligation or guilt. In fact, these same Israelites, as they walked out of Egypt and found themselves in the desert, they had crossed the Red Sea, escaped the Egyptian army. They're standing in front of a mountain. And God says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And the people say, yeah, that's what we want. We love it. He says, I'm going to give you this law and you're going to follow it. And if you do well, you'll be blessed. If you do bad, you'll be cursed. And they say, yeah, we love it. It's what we want. Okay, that's my translation. They didn't say it exactly like that. But essentially, that's what they said. They were obligated to that covenant. And when they broke the law and when they didn't live in line with it, they were guilty of breaking it. There's plenty of places where we can find that people are let go or they're no longer obligated by these covenants. A marriage covenant, for example, is between a man and a woman and they make a commitment for life. And Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians that that covenant is no longer valid if one of the spouses die. That that covenant, it ceases to exist. And so there's no, no problem, no one sees any problem with a widower who remarries. There's nothing wrong with that because the covenant is broken. There's no guilt. But it's not broken because someone failed in it. It's broken because of death. And so anyway, we see freedom from that obligation and we see freedom from guilt due to that obligation. We also see freedom from confinement, from being in prison. Uh, there, there are several places in Scripture that talk about this. One day Jesus walks into the temple. They hand him a scroll. The scroll happens to be from the book of Isaiah. So you can read this in two places. He sits down and reads it. This is what it says, Luke four eighteen through 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty, that's freedom, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty, freedom, those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The idea here is that Jesus came for the idea or to set people free from oppression or confinement, from captivity. And really this leads us into the fourth one fairly well because that's also what we would call freedom from sin. We are freed from sin. What does that mean? I mean, the New Testament's principle, is, it's, it's really pretty clear. We're all sinners. Now, I didn't become a sinner once I grew up and began to learn to lie. I didn't become a sinner the first time I, I stole that piece of bubble gum off the bottom shelf of the grocery store. I didn't become a sinner at some point in my life because of some act. I was born with that nature. New Testament teaches you were too. So here we are all in the same boat, stuck in this together. We are enslaved to sin because it's our nature. And so what do sinners do? They sin. Oh, so it shouldn't be surprising that people do evil things. It shouldn't be surprising that there's crazy stuff that happens. It shouldn't be surprising that babies, even at a very young age, become very selfish and couldn't care less about anything you want for your life. It shouldn't be surprising that even the youngest among us don't have to be taught to sin. They just do it. It just happens. 
You know, I didn't have to have my mom teach me how to lie. I just didn't want to be in trouble. Even though I deserved to be in trouble. That's our nature. But the New Testament teaches us that Jesus frees us from that nature. So here the thing is, is that now in in this freedom... We no longer have to bow to our nature. See, Jesus freed us in such a way that now when we face temptation as believers, we can actually say no. Revolutionary thought. But just because you face temptation doesn't mean you have to submit to it. Doesn't mean you have to engage in that that sinful activity. Just because you're, you're tempted doesn't mean that you have to fail. We are free. And we can actually say no to the things that we don't want to be a part of. We no longer have to act in accordance with that nature. Because Jesus Christ has freed us. And see, that freedom is contingent upon Jesus and our faith in Him, not our own effort. And you contrast those two views. Contrast the view of popular freedom that says you get to be your own master, you get to do your own thing. But in each of the four things that I've shown you, our freedom didn't lead us to be our own master. But it freed us from who we are so that we could become who we were created to be. You see, freedom from sin doesn't mean that now you get to live life however you please and do whatever you want. It doesn't mean that you get to ignore what pleases and honors God. It doesn't mean that you get to be whoever you want to be. You were created to be in subjection to God, our Creator. You were created to be in submission to Him. You and I were created to see Him highly exalted as we bow before Him. And His freedom... His freedom that He gives us, that He's provided for us, in no way frees us to ignore that relationship. See, those two ideas, they don't. That The popular view of freedom and the biblical view of freedom in no way mesh. They, 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 they can't even come close. But even the popular view of freedom that we get to be our own master, it's a lie. It is a lie. There's, it will never happen in all of our lives. It will never happen that we will be free in that way, that we get to be our own masters, that we get to do our own things. There's too many things in this world that rule over us. The laws we abide by in this country, come on. Every one of us want to speed. We want to go a little faster than we're supposed to. Well, maybe not everybody, but those daring people that are in here. You know, you, you know how, who you are. You want to go faster than what the speed limit allows, but you're limited. Your freedom is really limited. Honestly, you're breaking the law. There's times where I'd really like to just beat the daylights out of some people. No, nah, not really, not anymore, but it used to be. But I couldn't just run around doing that. I really wanted to, but my freedom was limited. You see, I had to bow to the laws of the land. I had to submit to them or go to jail. I wasn't free to do whatever I wanted. Imagine a land where people could do just whatever they wanted to do whenever they felt like doing it. 
It's chaos. We have to submit to the laws of the land or pay the consequence. If you have a family, you will at time find your freedom limited. If you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Imagine the change. And for those of you that have kids, you'll know this full well. The the day that baby comes home, your life is turned upside down. Never to be the same, or at least for 18 or 19 years. I mean, it will be different. Trust me. And if you want to experience it yourself, I will send my boys to stay with you for a while. And they're actually easier now. Problems are different. They don't require as much attention. But boy, if you've got a baby, man, you talk to, you talk to John and Andrea. Talk to uh, uh, Billy and Melissa. Talk, talk to them. It changes your life. If you have a job, no matter what your role is, no matter what your role, you could be the top dog. You know what? You answer to somebody. Somebody expects something from you. You will make decisions based on those relationships. Do you own a house? you rent a house? Do you live in a place that you have to mow the lawn? You have to keep up the house? You have to take care of stuff? At times, those things own you. Hmm. See, even the popular idea of freedom doesn't make sense. But that's how we define it. That's how our culture defines it. Merriam-Webster, you know, he... Not he, but the people who put this together, they're the ones that have all the answers, right? Merriam-Webster even says that the absence of freedom is the absence of necessity, coercion, or constraint in choice or action. Then we'll never experience freedom. If that's really what it is. We can't live up to the dictionary even. I mean, come on. Are we going to buy into that lie? Or are we going to strive to understand freedom in its true sense? Are we going to strive to understand freedom in its biblical sense? See, alongside freedom from sin in Christ, we find freedom to be the people that God created us to be. A people created to glorify and enjoy God. We find freedom to be to Him who we were always supposed to be to Him. And apart from Him, we will never experience it. You see, the truth is, the reason it is this way is because it's the way we were created to be. Even in the garden, when harmony was at rule, when when harmony was filling the land, when everything was as it was intended to be, and God looked at it and said, man, that is good. That's awesome. I did it. When that happened, even then, man wasn't totally free to be his own master. He was put in the creation to rule and subdue it, but that put him in servitude to it. God had given him a command, the man and the woman, he gave them a command to rule and subdue the earth that put them in subjection to him. He gave them a command that he expected them to follow. You can eat every fruit and from every tree, every plant. You can have whatever you want in this garden except for this one tree. You're not to eat this fruit. He expected them to follow that command. 
which demonstrates that they were subject to him. Whether we will ever recognize it or honor it or see it fully or not, we will never be out from under the rule of God. And the best way to experience him is in freedom. Freedom to to not be stuck in our old nature. Freedom not to be bound by the rules of law. Freedom to be free from oppression and captivity. Freedom to be freed from the guilt that our sin has laid on us. Freed to be a people that can glorify and enjoy God in His fullness. You see, that's the freedom that Jesus came for. That's the gospel that Paul was defending. That's the gospel that Paul was fighting for. That's the freedom that he wanted these Galatians to experience. Not that they could live in chaos and run and do their own thing and be masters of their own domain. That's Seinfeld, sorry. Man, my old self just slipping in. Master of their own destiny. That's really what I meant. That's not what he meant for them. It's not what he wanted for them. It's not what he longed for them. But he wanted them to experience a freedom in Christ. To be the people that God had created them to be. And you know what? He didn't just want that for the Galatians. He wanted that for the generations to come. I mean, look at verse 5. Even in, even in the difficulty that the interpreters and translators have in dealing with these verses, this rings very clear in verse 5. He says, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Here's Titus living in, this, in the middle. I mean, he's, he's brought into the middle of circumcision city. This is the place. I mean, they are on circumcision. This is their thing. It's what makes them who they are. Now, I come to passages like this and I, I automatically question, how do they know? I mean, is there a secret handshake that little boys are taught? This is the circumcised boy's handshake and this is the way you do it. You know, are they, I don't know. Is the culture so open? That they're just seeing one. It just boggles my mind. But this is the thing. They knew it. And there's people that come into this church and are spying out the freedom. And, and, and Titus's uncircumcisedness. And they're saying he needs to get circumcised. Man, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how it comes to be known. But as it became known, they fought for it. These false brothers stood up and demanded it. And they looked to the apostles in the church, the ones that were from Jerusalem originally, the ones that had been with Jesus and followed Jesus, and the ones that are later going to be called pillars of the church. They looked to them to defend their point of view. And they demanded it. And Paul says, we didn't give an inch. We stood for this so that you, speaking to the Galatians, (laughs) but also to us, So that you could hear the gospel. That only through Jesus Christ can you be saved. Only the price that he paid on the cross in your place for your sins is good enough. You can add nothing to it by your work and effort. By your religious tradition. You see, Paul. It's by Paul. 
and Titus and the other apostles that stood there defending this perspective that, that the Galatians heard the gospel brothers or, or the gospel message as they opposed these false brothers. And it's the reason that thousands of years later, a young Chinese girl on the streets of Yangshua, China, in a hostile environment, could be told the truth. There is no sense in getting in the, in, in the shower before you get in the bathtub. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be a Christian and He will wash you clean and free you from this bondage of slavery. And see, it took a little while to get to her. It was by Paul and the apostles, men like Titus, and those that followed. People like Martin Luther and John Calvin. People that followed them. John Bunyan, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, and even contemporary leaders in the church like John Piper, Timothy Keller. <clears throat> C.J. Mahaney, J.I. Packer. And for her and her experience and the way that the gospel came to her, two young nobodies that were willing to tell her that she was believing a lie. You see, the truth is that Paul took this stand because it was a stand worth taking. Because every other thing, every other message, every other idea, every other tendency we have to, to believe that we can save ourselves or that in some way we can add to the gospel, that we can add to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, it leads us to slavery. And we have to be willing to take that stand. Because there might be someone in our neighborhood or some relative of ours in generations to come. Or some young person standing on the other side of the world that needs to hear it. You see, not only were they defenders of the message, but they have called us to defend this message. Recognize your freedom in Christ. Recognize that you did not save yourself that you rely fully upon His cross and the work that He did upon that cross. That you are completely indebted to Him. Not indebted in such a way that you are trying to work off that debt and free yourself from it. But that you are making yourself subject to it. That you are submitting under its authority. Recognize that that frees you to experience religious tradition, not because you have to, but because you get to. It, it frees you not to follow some rule or law or, or some, some ritual or tradition, not because you have to, but because you get to. You see, it frees you to no longer carry the debt, to no longer carry the weight and the yoke that your sin had you enslaved to. to say no to it. Not simply because you have to, but because you get to. It frees you to look temptation in the face and say, I want you no more. Not because you have to, but because you get to. You see, this freedom that Christ has offered us 
this gospel message that leads us to freedom in Christ is the very gospel that Paul was defending. And it's the very gospel that we've been called to defend. In my mind, it's really why this church exists. You see, as we planted, there was a lot of frustration and a lot of bitterness. But one thing I always wanted us to be about was presenting an unadulterated gospel that led us not to depend on ourselves, but to trust in Christ alone that would then work itself out, not in some moral law or some religious rule, but that would work itself out that we would turn then and worship as an act of adoration and love for Jesus Christ, not because we have to, but because we get to. That's why we exist as a church. And so today, I just want you to consider it. I want you to think about it. Even as we look and think about taking communion, recognize that those aren't just traditions or some old tired ritual that we take. They're symbols of the price that was paid for us. That Jesus said is the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He said that. Paul defended it. Peter, James, John, the apostles, they taught it all across the region. And it made its way to Springfield, Missouri. So that you and I could stand together enjoying this freedom and willing to defend it. Consider your freedom today. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You're gracious, glorious. I just pray, Father, that you'd continue to do a work through your truth. That, that God, I, I know my limitations. I know my struggles as a man. I know, Father, that, that my language and the way that I do things, God, I, I know... <coughs> But I recognize you're bigger than that. And I recognize that your spirit can work now in the hearts of each and every person here and bring the truth of this message to them. I pray, God, that you would remind us that we are free from the slavery that kept us in bondage to our nature. But that we are free to be the people that you've called us to be. Submitted wholly and completely to you. That, that God, that, that we would recognize that you are our everything, that we would fully recognize it and that we would embrace it, that God, we would fully embrace your headship and sovereignty over us, that we would enslave ourselves to you, that you might be greatly glorified through us, that we wouldn't use our freedom for acts of license, but that our freedom would be exactly what it was meant to be. That it would enable us to glorify you and enjoy you. And so all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to a time to respond every week. One of the ways we do that is by taking communion. I would encourage you to confess your sin. Take a time to to repent.